Welcome to McKinsey on Government. Each episode examines one of the hardest problems facing government today and solutions from McKinsey experts and other leaders. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. This is episode number one. A number of high-profile incidents in the past few months have highlighted the fragility of the supply chain, both in the cyber realm and in hard goods. Bob Kalaski is director of the National Risk Management Center at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Ed Barabal is a partner at McKinsey & Company's manufacturing and supply chain practice. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Bob, I start with you. What has happened over the last several years to generate such an interest in supply chain where there really wasn't that much interest in thinking about it in the past? Sure, sure, Francis. Thanks for having me on this. and It's great, great to be with you. Um, so the reason we supply chain security and supply chain resilience are um, such an area of attention for the U.S. government are because the risk demands it. Um, we, we have seen over time that increase of in, digitalization, inf- the use of information and communications technology to deliver critical functions, which has inevitably been a great thing for the country in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, have introduced new aspects of risk that need to be thought of and managed. And it's also caught the attention of our adversaries, right? And so, you know, you see from nation states who are interested in causing harm via cyber means that they are looking at supply chains as a mechanism for those attacks. And when I say, you know, supply chains as a mechanism for attacks, I'm largely talking about software attacks, right? And the fact that software runs everything and that software, how software is deployed, creates new vulnerabilities, you know, it's effective, but also creates new vulnerabilities. Adversaries have gone there, they've gone after those vulnerabilities. That, that means that we as security professionals, both national security and, and then corporate security um, professionals need to be prepared to understand and address those vulnerabilities. At the same time, you know, the, 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 the fact that supply chains have gone so global, um, you know, we've created new risk with, with the fact of the reliability and the availability of certain things that, that we, we want to make sure that they were, were properly managed. So it's, it's a question of going where the risk is, getting ahead of the risk and making sure we're anticipating security needs and addressing them before they become problems. Ed, welcome. Thanks for joining the conversation. What are the, the biggest challenges that organizations across the public sector are seeing in managing and and assessing risk in their supply chains. Start with assessment first, Ed. Uh, thanks so much, Francis. Uh, I appreciate you having me on and, and Bob to, to join you for this too. And I think it's such a good question. Uh, the first challenge, frankly, is just the data that you need to do this type of assessment. So most companies and the government know who they buy from immediately. But in our research, we find that most of the uh, more risks emerge from tier two, tier three, tier four of the supply chain versus the folks that you immediately buy from. So it's your supplier, suppliers, or your supplier, supplier, supplier. And uh, for most industries, most folks don't have that data. And if you go and ask your supplier, could you tell me, a lot of times they might say that's proprietary information or that's information that I'm not going to share because it could give you an advantage in negotiation or competitively with me. And so getting the information to even know who to assess is a challenge. And then once you know who to assess, uh, as Bob was saying, you know, there's all sorts of different factors, different vectors for attack, and making sure you conduct a truly comprehensive assessment of those suppliers requires stitching together a lot of different data and information. And doing that at scale, then, for thousands or tens of thousands of suppliers, which is what you get to for complex products like information technology or weapon systems, uh, it becomes a real challenge. And that's why this is hard. 
What have organizations done, Ed, to try to fill that gap themselves? Are there assessments? Are there tools? Are there processes that organizations can put in place to try to figure that some of that stuff out on their own? Or are those tools not even really readily available? Yeah, this is a space that I would say is rapidly innovating right now. Uh, there's so much focus on this issue coming out of the coronavirus uh, crisis that obviously we're still in and the world is still in. But it's really shined a spotlight across industries on what uh, what a problem this is for the U.S. and Europe and other places in the world. And so there's a lot of venture capital funding flowing into this space right now. You're seeing a lot of established companies get into it, also a lot of startups coming in to try to build solutions. Uh, and companies, I think, right now are really trying to sort through, and government agencies as well, how much of this do we do on our own? Do we just go buy the data, get the information, stitch it together on and do it? And how much is this something that's actually going to become a product that we or a service that we just go out and buy? And that's still a pretty uh, uncertain question, I think, for a lot of folks. And you see a lot of testing different methods, both in the government and the private sector right now. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's a mix of having data so you can actually do outside in assessments, say, who do I think my supplier or supplier might be? but also really ramping up on supplier collaboration. Uh, one of the companies that's doing quite well right now in the semiconductor shortage is Toyota. And Toyota actually invested pretty heavily after the tsunami in 2011 in Japan, which put a big squeeze on their supply chain. Uh, much better supplier collaboration, much better understanding of their supply chain, understanding where they needed to keep more stock, which particular components they were really vulnerable to. And given that, when you look at their performance during this crisis versus others, it's been better. And I think yeah, there's a lot of lessons out of that type of preparedness that others are trying to adopt right now. I want to come back to those concepts because I think there's an important analogy and maybe an important difference for a public sector organization. Um, Bob, one of the elements that uh, the Department of Homeland Security has undertaken that, that you and your colleagues at CISA have undertaken is an information and communications technology Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force. Tell me what that task force is trying to accomplish when it comes to this supply chain challenge. Sure. So, so the task force is um, one of these examples of public-private collaboration and the authorities that we have within the department to bring industry to the table to help deal with national security priorities. So the Information Communications Technology Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force is made up not just of 20 federal agencies who have a lot to say about how we're going to make um, the federal government more secure, but also IT companies, you know, big IT companies. There are big communications companies and some associations representing some of the small organizations. And we work industry and government together to, to solve some of the hoary problems or, or make progress against some of the hoary problems that are going to make us better supply chain risk. Are we able to share information between government and industry to understand supply chain risks? Can we knit that information together as a task force to then say, what are priority threats that supply chain risk managers, both within government and industry, should be looking at? And so we, we've identified you know, uh, more than 100 threat scenarios that can form the basis for supply chain risk management programs. And then do, are there tools out there, and the task force is working on developing tools to help a small and medium-sized business, other businesses implement supply chain risk management programs. At the same time, at the policy level, we're working on things that will um, drive incentives to taking into account um, supply chain risk as part of acquisitions processes, ways to do that effectively. So the, the task force really, we sit around and we, we try to understand the risk collectively, and then we prioritize things that will help advance the overall um, approach to national supply chain security. 
Are the risks in the supply chain of those private sector companies similar to the risks in a public sector organization like a federal agency, or are they close enough, analogous enough that the lessons learned make sense, or is it just a matter of those companies being able to share um, something with the public sector, or am I looking at it all the wrong? No, no, you're looking. I mean, first of all, it's shared risk, right? So these are companies that you know the government's buying technology from. It's it's not like we're making up our own um, software and hardware. So we're getting the technology from these companies, and so if they have risk down further in their suppliers, that's our risk too. And so you know a lot of these are tier one suppliers to the defense industrial base, tier one suppliers to the banks and, and things like that. And so you know. We've, we've got to manage our, our own ICT risk through supplies in the government, but we want these companies to be doing that further on, as, as Ed was talking about, down to their tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers. And so, you know, it is shared risk. Um, the, 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 the availability of the commercial technologies that Ed was talking about for companies in this space to understand their risk and translate um, some of that information to the government and the information that we have through intelligence processes will help us get a better understanding of that shared risk so, so that we're making consistent risk management decisions. And you use that Toyota example, and it's a really good one because it's something that a lot of people in uh, just regular citizens who don't care about necessarily how the government works or uh, don't think about supply chain, they understand that it's harder now to find a new car on the lot because of the chip problem. Um, what did Toyota do that could apply to an organization in the public sector who can't necessarily go out and buy down the supply chain to buy those tier two, tier three, tier four uh, organizations, but needs to work with them in order to be able to deliver on mission? That's a great question. Uh, I think the first step really is just uh, understanding what do we know and what don't we know? And I, I find that even uh, private and public sector right now, if you walk into an organization that's trying to deal with this problem and you ask, you know, where do you know that you actually think you know who's in your supply chain and where don't you? It's actually less common than more common that someone's quantified that and said, here's where we think we bl we're blind. Here's where we think we actually might know. And that was really the first step is to say, what do we know? And what don't we know? And then uh, in the example, they actually have quite a bit of market leverage over their suppliers. So they were able to go and say, we'd like you to start providing this information. And they were able to get compliance over time and get better visibility. I think the challenge for the government is there are some markets where the government has that type of leverage, but there's a lot of markets like Bob's talking about in ICT, where frankly, the government may not have so much leverage to be able to go and say, look, if you want to do business with us, you're going to have to give us this information. There are some companies that might say, okay, then we're just not going to do business with you. And so I think the government in this case needs to understand a little bit of where where do we have that power? Where can we use acquisition practices like Bob was talking about to help companies get their arms around this and make sure that the government's getting the information that we need? And for the sectors where there may be less, you know, kind of market influence, less ability to do that, leveraging some of the you know, techniques that are becoming commercially data available to understand outside end, what do we think we're exposed to and what kind of risk are we bearing? Bob, does the risk management framework in a supply chain environment work the same way? Are the techniques the same in assessing risk and prioritizing it as in other types of risk management? Or is there something unique to the supply chain concept uh, that requires somebody to look at it differently? Ultimately, I, I think the answer is more, it's the same than, than unique. Obviously, there's 
elements of inquiry. The, the risk management framework that, that we advocate is think about the critical functions that you present. So if, if you are the government, what, what, is, what are the critical things that the Department of Homeland Security does? What are essential functions? What are the critical functions that we contribute to? And how can supply chain failures, t- attacks or failures in some other way, you know, how is that linked to the risks of, of lack of functionality? And a lot of this functionality, it's not just about delivering functionality, but the confidentiality around it, the integrity ar- around those things. And so the end state I'm trying to manage risk against is con- continued safe functionality with information protected. That's the same whether I'm in government or whether you know, my continued business functionality and supply chains present a new attack vector, a new vulnerability to that functionality. And so you know, prioritize based on risk, where the likelihood of loss of functionality, loss of safety is gonna be the highest and take steps to reduce that risk. Ed, do you find that to be the way that people think are thinking about it when you sit down with them for the first time? Is that how they're analyzing their supply chain risk and how they're um, thinking about trying to prioritize it? I think folks are getting there. I think a lot of times organizations are initially thinking about whatever the thing is that bit them most recently, be it a cyber attack or a flood or an earthquake or something like that. But then you step back and start to say, if we want to be more resilient as a business or as an agency, what are all the elements we need to look at? And it's getting more and more common that that people are starting to think across the range of potential uh, effects. Um, this is also starting to get attention, like Bob was saying, more at the C-suite. You know, we released some research last year that the average company can expect to lose about 45% of one year's uh, earnings over the next decade due to supply chain disruption. And if you're sitting in the CEO seat, that's pretty materialized. It's essentially 5% of your earnings over the next decade, if, you, if you're simple about it, it might not materialize. And the implication, I think, for the government on that is that same research said that uh, companies can expect a production stop due to supply chain disruption about every three and a half years for one to two months. And depending on what kind of goods those are and how much stockpile you have, one to two months can be a long time to have production shut down. So I, I think this is an issue that you know, folks are starting to look at it much more comprehensively. It might start from the what hit me most recently, but uh, as people start to understand the breadth of the potential effects they could experience, they're really starting to look at it more broadly. How do you move somebody, Ed, from a situation where they're thinking about what just broke to getting in front of this issue and thinking about, as you said earlier, how to know what you know? Uh, I think the the best thing that you can do is when something happens, obviously kind of going back and doing the initial root cause assessment, but also saying, you know, what does this tell us about the broader context that we're now operating in. I think that's where, frankly, a lot of uh, a lot of leaders have been uh, not caught flat-footed may be an exaggeration, but I think it, the reason this has become such a hot topic so quickly is uh, I don't think people appreciate how much the context that we were operating in as a global economy had changed over the past decade. Uh, you know, you had, uh, you had some kind of warning indicators, but then you started to have trade agreements that folks thought were pretty stable changing. You had climate events happening that hadn't happened before. And all these things started stacking up and you can kind of write one off and write another off and write another off. It's like, wow, I couldn't believe that happened. But eventually you start to have to say, okay, maybe actually something's going on here. And the thing that I, I think is most important for organizations is to just not look at the thing that happened, but step back and say, has actually the context that we're operating in changed? 
And as a thing that just happened, not a one-off and an odd thing that happened, but uh, more of a sign that we're operating in a different environment than we were before that we thought we might have been. So we've talked a lot so far on this conversation about where we are today and how we got there. Uh, Bob, what's coming next? What, how, do, how does one anticipate risks that we might not know are risks yet? For example, how do we sit in November of 2019 or January of 2020 and anticipate risks from a pandemic that may or may not be coming at some point in time um, that we might have to deal with? How do, how do we put something like that onto the matrix to understand what we have to plan for, what we have to think about? McKinsey does some good strategic thinking about what the future is going to look like. So do other consulting companies and other folks. I, I look at drivers, and we use these at the National Risk Management Center, physical cyber convergence, digitalization of convergence, you know, where geopolitics are headed, emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, biotech, quantum computing, um, societal trends and market forces and governance, and all those are changing so quickly. And to what Ed, Ed's just saying, right, you have to set aside some time to consider how those things, let's not predict the future, let's consider the future and look for things that will indicate we're, we're headed one way or the other toward the future and have plans as those things change. And the best organizations, it, it takes an investment in planning, it takes an investment in, in thinking, it takes an investment in redundancy and capacity and things that aren't quite all about efficiency and, and you know, earnings quarter by quarter and, and then do the, do the planning and exercise and, and t stress testing against those scenarios. And, and so, you know, the only thing that's certain is things are going to change pretty dramatically in the next 15 years. I don't know exactly how they're going to change, but, but if you're not planning against how they could change and, and preparing with, with some backup capability, you're likely to be left behind when something happens. And the challenge, I suppose, Bob, is that you can plan for 10 or 15 contingencies and not know when number 16 is going to be the one that you actually get, right? Yeah, I mean, hopefully in planning for that many, you, you know, they share enough characteristics that, that it may, you might get the specifics wrong, but the capabilities you need to deal with a problem are the same. And that's the same concept as you laid out a couple of minutes ago in talking about the potential change elements of trade agreements and climate and so on, things that we saw in the past. Um, what do the most successful organizations that you've worked with do to think about the possibilities of what they might be up against at some point in the future? How do they successfully strategize uh, the potential contingencies, understanding they won't be able to get them all? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, so the way that we think about a supply chain risk that manifests itself in the news is something you read about is it's the product of a shock and a vulnerability. And shocks are things like the flood you didn't expect, the earthquake, the cyber attack. Um, you probably shouldn't spend a ton of time trying to predict when exactly those are going to happen, because if you could, you should you know, go get a different career, be a stock trader, you'll make a lot of money. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing that you can really understand is vulnerability. And so I think part of this is just stepping back and saying, what's a, what is the conference of assessment or vulnerabilities and where are they today for the operational context we're in? If you're a company, for your production lines, if you're uh, a government agency for the mission you're trying to achieve, what are the different things that we really need and where are we vulnerable? And then as Bob was saying, I think what we're seeing a lot of companies actually do now is get their boards and their executives in a room together and do some scenario planning. 
but not just uh, kind of let's all get together for two days and talk about what could happen, but doing the real prep work, doing the analysis ahead of time, getting the understanding of where these vulnerabilities are, and actually putting together some structured scenarios on if this happened, what would we do? And, you know, the board might play the competitors, the C-suite might play themselves. And, you know, let's actually see what decisions we make and what would happen. And it's not that you're trying to predict the future and say that is what's going to happen. But as Bob was saying, hopefully that gives you, it's the practice. So when something does happen, you've all thought about it. You're on the same page about what types of moves you would make. And it gets the executive team more ready. And I think government agencies can do the same thing. Yeah, as I as you were describing that kind of that vision, I was thinking about some uh, C-suites inside federal agencies that I wonder if they're doing that kind of contingency planning. And it sounds to me like that the, one of the greatest benefits of what you just laid out there, Ed, is just the level of engagement, is the awareness of all of those people around the table of maybe they didn't think of the possibility that this is something that whatever this may be at the moment might be something that their organization might have to deal with, but it, it raises that level of awareness and makes uh, conversations about other subjects more useful and more productive. Is that a fair observation, you think, that, Ed? That is totally right. That's exactly exactly correct. And I think the, the, the one thing I'd say for folks who are either doing this or thinking about it, and yeah, I know DHS does CyberStorm and things like this, so it's, this isn't a foreign concept in government, but the preparation is key and high quality preparation in terms of actually understanding the context, the facts of what you're operating on, the thing that you're stress testing. Uh, otherwise it just becomes a fun conversation that you could have over red wine. So it's really gotta be you know, I think something that's based in facts and information to make it a useful exercise. Bob, I asked you earlier in our conversation, what, whether there was a difference between uh, supply chain risk management and other types of risk management, what's the trajectory of risk management as a practice moving forward. Do you expect to see uh, different techniques, different uh, concerns, or, or are, is risk management, in your view, uh, kind of a mature specialty or practice that will continue along the trajectory that it's on today? I mean, one of the things that will change and is changing is the proliferation of available data and translating data into risk models. And so, so much of risk management um, complex things was data poor or dominated by, by uncertainty earlier on. And I, I think if you can build risk models that take advantage of all the information that's out there um, more quickly, that's going to give you a more real-time understanding of risk. The other, the other thing that I think, you know, what, what's happening in risk, and, and we, we advocate this around cyber all the time, is make risk management and, and cyber risk management part of overall enterprise risk governance and, and think seriously about risk governance, um, which, me, which then means communicating all this data into a way that a board or C-suite can make decisions in a translatable way that, that does that. And, and I've seen you know, great improvement in, in the last five to 10 years in data-driven models being moved into sort of a risk governance practice and that's that's just gonna gonna help with this practice. We're not, you know, managing risk doesn't mean getting everything right, but but it means thinking through contingencies, making investments is the side. And, and so, you know, that's my optimism. We're almost out of time, Ed. Uh, one final question for you: uh, What does the future, in your view, look like for uh, public-private partnerships in risk management? Uh, Bob talked about how important the public-private piece is of the task force that uh, he's running. 
What's that look like more broadly in your view in the next year, three years, five years? The biggest thing I think is obviously the risk management's an end to a means. Uh, you want to identify the risks and then figure out how to mitigate them to the extent that you can. Um, you know, a lot of folks are talking about uh, domestic sourcing is a uh, what revitalizing domestic sourcing is a way to do that. Uh, we just released a report last week on revitalizing U.S. manufacturing, and one of the big things that I thought was interesting in that is we looked at it in scale-based industries, you know, things like auto, chemicals, production, that sort of stuff. What the uh, returns on investment that U.S. investors or North American investors expected versus Asian investors. And North American investors expect about a 12 to 14% return on their investments in, that, uh, in those industries versus about 7% in Asia. And that naturally results in CEOs and leaders uh, to satisfy those demands, squeezing their supply chain. And solving that problem is not a problem that the public sector or the private sector is going to solve on their own, but they're going to have to solve together. And so I think the future and the way ahead on this is it's going to be great once we all work together, understand where the risks sit, but the really hard work and collaboration is going to be actually figuring out how do we resolve some of these issues? Because it's not, it's not as easy as snapping a finger and there's a lot of um, market and structural barriers that are going to need to be worked through together, public and private sector to get there. Just very quickly, what are some of those barriers? What do you anticipate them being in? Uh, well, I think first is actually just questioning our own fundamental assumptions. I, you look at a lot of countries that I think people typically say, oh, well, the labor is just so much cheaper there. That's not true anymore. Uh, a lot of countries that were formerly low-cost countries, if you look at their fully loaded labor costs, it's not that different than the United States. So I think the first is we just need to question some of the fundamental assumptions that you know, folks might hold and make sure that the information and the facts that we're operating off of are, are current. You know, the world's changing pretty fast. Uh, and so that's the foundation for good policymaking and good decisions. But from there, uh, you know, I think the uh, figuring out how we really take advantage of you know, the buzzword is industry 4.0, but basically all the new advanced manufacturing techniques from additive technology to much better end-to-end supply chain management tools, which you know uh, people are finding during this pandemic, lets you have more visibility of what's going on, be more reactive when things happen. Really investing in those can help drive productivity and, and really help make the U.S. a more competitive place to do business from a manufacturing perspective. And I think uh, yeah, really figuring out how we invest in those technologies of the country, how we reestablish some of our uh, manufacturing capabilities here is going to be uh, the barriers and the, the things that we can cross over. We just need to together between government and industry. Ed Barable of McKinsey and Bob Kolaski of CISA at the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks very much for the conversation. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Bob. You've been listening to McKinsey on Government, a presentation of McKinsey and Company. Our next episode's in two weeks. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.